Welcome to Life Lessons with Dr. Steve Shell. For 20 years, Dr. Steve's 30-minute radio program, Life Lessons, was heard throughout the United States. Committed to comprehensively teaching through entire books of the Bible, Pastor Steve pulls out the deep, eternal truths in each section of Scripture without skipping over the challenging passages. He applies what is learned clearly and practically so that we're inspired not to just be hearers of the Word, but doers also. Today we're going to turn to chapter 5 in the book of Genesis, uh, pardon me, Exodus. We're going to talk today about learning to uh, spiritually fight. The Lord's going to toughen us. The, the book of Exodus, I call it the road to freedom because God takes us out of bondage and leads us into inheriting promises. We're always going somewhere. It's not just God wants to free us to just generically be free, but he's freeing us to inherit, freeing us to possess, freeing us to serve, freeing us to minister, freeing us to have a life that was intended to be lived. It's a, we're going somewhere that's beautiful, that's wonderful. If you and I are going to be free and inherit our promises, we're going to have to learn to fight. There's a toughness that has to be in any victorious Christian. There's a, a courage, a boldness, and a stubbornness, you might say, that has to get worked into our souls. You have to be prepared to fight. Passivity is not the way we live out our Christian lives. You can't be passive as you deal with God or as you deal with the devil. There's, there's a strength to us. So just because something is God's will for us, doesn't mean it will come easily or without opposition. I love it when people say, you can always tell when it's God. Everything just fits together perfectly, you know, and goes smoothly. I hadn't noticed. I don't see it in the Bible. And 40 years of my own experience haven't proven that to be true. Occasionally it has happened. It's fluke, I think. My experience is... That whenever I seem to step out in God, there seems to be some sort of opposition, some, something that has to be pressed through and dealt with. There has to be a determination to follow through or it's not going to happen. That's my experience. Not everything clicks together and runs smoothly. You just know it's God. That's a myth. I was uh, flying, uh, I, well, I, on our last trip to South Africa... Our main, the main team had gone down to uh, the Transkei and were working on a building project. And then I had been assigned to go and speak at some things in northern South Africa and then meet them after the first week. Well, I, I, I remember sitting in the airplane, and South African Airlines is a nice airline, and I'm sitting there and I'm getting, you know, served my dinner and all of this, looking out at the beautiful view, and I thought, after the first week, everything had gone so smoothly. I mean, including my, I hadn't lost any luggage, everything was on time, the things had gone well, and I thought to myself, man, does the devil know we're here? <laughs> and it just, I thought, this is too smooth. This is too easy. This is going too well. Uh, so e either we're not serving the Lord or, or something's wrong here because there's no opposition. It bothered me that there was no opposition. Now, I was one day early in my worry. 
I would land in South Africa and immediately fall off the roof and break my ankle and somebody else would have things go jammed through his arm and on and on and on. So the, the devil did know we were there. Hallelujah. <laughs> That's why you pray when we go out on missions. There is always a backlash. Whenever the kingdom of God moves forward, you can anticipate a reaction from hell. Now, I'm not trying to scare you because I'm gonna, we're going to say loud and clear, our God is far greater than the devil. But if you don't know there's a devil, if you don't know there's an opposition, if you don't understand some of these principles, it'll confuse you. When it comes, you begin to doubt God, you begin to doubt your guidance, you begin to get confused if you don't know how the devil operates. And this chapter 5 of Genesis illustrates the heart of the devil beautifully. Satan is working through Pharaoh to hold the people of Israel in bondage. And we're going to watch the techniques. We'll see five. Five mental techniques that the devil uses to keep people from moving forward and inheriting their freedom or their promises. So just because something is God's will for us does, does not mean it will come easily or without opposition. In fact, I would argue the reverse is the case. There are always forces which oppose the advancement of God's kingdom. Where, whenever God's power is breaking into darkness, wherever God is breaking into the darkness with salvation, healing, restoration, deliverance, love, guidance, or provision... When someone, when you can count on this, when someone's being saved or drawn to Christ, when there's healing involved, when a marriage or relationship, a family relationship or dear friendships are being restored, when something broken is being put back together, where there's deliverance from oppression and demonic assault, where there is love coming into some cold, bitter, angry heart, where there's guidance, where there's been confusion, where there's provision, where there's been poverty. When God moves into darkness, you can anticipate the backlash. You can anticipate the war. You can just anticipate it. We can expect a counterattack from the enemy. So we have to learn to fight. But the battle we experience primarily takes place in our own minds. We're going to see real clearly in the passage that God's the one that takes on the devil, not you and me. You know, I hear people belittle the devil and say, oh, he's a toothless lion, and they laugh at him and stuff. That is the dumbest thing I can imagine. Absolutely. Ooh. That means loser, I think. I hope. It's something else. I don't know it. The devil is not a toothless lion. He's a vicious fallen archangel. He'll eat you for lunch. Except the Lord Jesus surrounds you. Our Lord is vastly superior. Our Lord is the creating God. The power, he is the, the Lord of heaven and earth. There is none like him. But you and I are no match for the devil. And you don't make fun of him. You don't mess with him. You let the Lord deal with him. We're going to see very clearly that the Lord says, I will deal with him. But you and I do have a battle. We have a battle to fight. But our battle is primarily in here. In the head. It's it, within us is where we fight our fight. 
The battle we experience is primarily takes, primarily takes place in our own minds. When the devil's backlash comes, we tend to become discouraged, allowing negative thoughts to quench our hearts. We, we pull out. We back up. We grow intimidated. This chapter of Exodus vividly exposes the heart of the devil. Working through Pharaoh, we see a cruel personality which wants to keep people in bondage and oppose the work of God. We learn that the devil will not stand back passively and release people, even when God commands it. Did you see that? We're going to see God command that his people be released, and we're going to see the devil say, I don't know who you are. Of course, he does. We're going to see him defy and anybody who's dealt in deliverance ministry or anything else, you've seen that before. Anybody who's begun to work with, with the Lord and seen God's will trying to come to bear, you've seen that opposition. Don't, he doesn't roll over. The devil will, we learn that the devil will not stand back passively and release people even when God commands it. Instead of giving up and slinking away quietly, he reacts using his own arsenal of weapons. But Exodus brings us good news. It shows us God's power far outweighs the devil's. So we can be confident he will deliver us if only we learn to stand firm. What do we have to do? Again? Once more? We have to learn to stand firm. Our battle's in here. We have to learn to stand firm. That's where we do our fighting. Father, we ask you to open the word of God to us today. We ask you to strengthen us and train us as disciples and your servants. Lord, we would be free. And we would see others freed. Make us tough. Make us strong. Strong to stand in you. Strong to let you fight. Strong to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. Thank you, Lord, for making us that kind of people. In Jesus' name, amen. Before I read chapter 5, I'm going to drop back and summarize a little something in chapter 3. God starts out with giving us a promise. He starts out by telling Moses, first of all at the burning bush, and then Moses tells the elders of Israel what God told him. So God speaks to his people these promises. What did God say to them? He told them he cared about them. Chapter 3, verse 7, he said he loved them and that he knew their sufferings. He cared about their sufferings. And then he said he would deliver them. He would do it. He said, I care about you. I've seen your sufferings and I will come down and I will deliver you with my power. And then he said he would give them a whole new life, not simply deliver them out of bondage to Egypt, but would take them to a land flowing with milk and honey. Beautiful description of a, of a land where there's so much pasturage that there's, there's plenty of milk and that there's just so, much, so many fertile fields that with all these beehives that there's overflowing honey. Be a, be a fertile land with great crops, great pastures. They would prosper in this new land. And he said, however he said, and this, if you've got your Bible open, look at verse 19. This is the part of what God said that the people forgot. This is the part that Moses forgot. This is the part that you and I forget. We hear, we easily hear that he loves us. We easily hear his promise to deliver us. 
We don't forget that he's promised us a brand new land and a beautiful blessing and inheritance. But we tend to forget this part of what he said. He says in verse 19, chapter 3, But I know that the king of Egypt will not permit you to go except under compulsion. I'm going to have to force him to let you go. So I will stretch out my hand and strike Egypt with all my miracles, which I shall do in the midst of it. And after that, after that, after that, he will let you go. Do you notice he said there's a battle ahead? He said there's a contest we're going to go through. I'm going to do many miracles. I'm going to have to reach out my strong arm numerous times. I'm going to have to compel this stubborn king to let you go. But after I've done all of that, then he will let you go. It's clear. That's the part they forgot. And then he says, if you notice there in verse 20, that he said he would do the fighting. So I will stretch out my hand and strike Egypt with all my miracles, which I shall do in the midst of it. And after that, he will let you go. He doesn't say, sharpen your spears, sharpen your swords. We're going to have an insurrection here. We're going to have a slave rebellion like Spartacus or something. And you're going to throw the, throw the bondage of the Egyptians off. You're going to handle this. He didn't say that. He says, I'll do it. I'll do it. But it will take some doing. Chapter 5. I'm going to read it to you, summarize some parts of it, and then we'll come back and see the principles that are there. Chapter 5, verse 1. And afterward, Moses and Aaron came and said to Pharaoh, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel. This is after Moses has met up with his older brother. Aaron is three years older than he is. They've met up. They have gone back to Egypt. They have met with the elders of Israel. They have shown them the signs. Remember the throwing the staff on the ground and it turning into a snake, his hand going into his cloak and coming out and turning leprous, uh, taking the water from the Nile, pouring it out and becoming blood when it hit the ground. That convinced the people. God said it would and they go, whoa, you are the man. And so they're behind him. They think this is cool. They've heard God loves them. They've sent this powerful prophet. Yay, here we go. So that's their attitude as we pick up here. And afterward, Moses and Aaron came and said to Pharaoh, Thus says the Lord God, the God of Israel, Let my people go. Notice the command. Let my people go that they may celebrate a feast to me in the wilderness. But Pharaoh said, Who is the Lord? Who is Yahweh that I should obey his voice? To let Israel go. I don't know Yahweh. And besides, I'll not let Israel go. And then they said, the God of the Hebrews has met with us. Please let us go three days journey, 60 to 90 miles into the wilderness that we may sacrifice to the Lord our God. Otherwise, he will fall on us with pestilence, that'd be plagues, or with sword, violence, some sort of assault. But the king of Egypt said to them, Moses and Aaron, why do you draw the people away from their work? Get back to your labors. Again, Moses, uh, Pharaoh said, look, the people of the land are now many, and you would have them cease from their labors. So the same day Pharaoh commanded the taskmasters over the people and their foremen, saying, you are no longer to give the people straw to make brick pre as previously. Let them go and gather straw for themselves. 
but the quota of bricks which they, are making pre they are, were making previously, you shall impose on them. You are not to reduce any of it. Because they're lazy, therefore they cry out, let us go and sacrifice to our God. Let the labor be heavier on the men. Not, that's not as opposed to the women, just heavier on them. And let them work at it that they may pay no attention to the lying words, is what he actually said. All right, now the word goes out that, you know, no sooner do Moses and Aaron walk out of his court, but what he gives this order. And then we see the taskmasters, they are the Egyptian leaders of these slave teams. And then we see them with their foremen. The foremen are the Hebrew, uh, they'll be bilingual Hebrews that run the various work gangs. So you've got this little structure there. The taskmasters of the people and their foremen went out and spoke to the people saying, thus says the Pharaoh. And so this command is given and the people now have to go out and gather straw or twigs or junk or whatever they can find to make bricks. Now the way they made bricks is they took clay and ordinarily they would have chopped straw which provided sort of the tactile strength for the thing and they'd mix it into this clay, they push it into wooden forms and dry those bricks in the sun. They were not, they were not fire dried or uh, baked bricks, they were uh, sun dried. And they'd sun dry these bricks and they'd stack them and then they'd cover them and protect them from the weather. But they had a certain quota, they had to make X number of these things. And, and ordinarily the Egyptians have been providing them the chopped straw, the, the raw materials. Now they say, now you have to make the same number of bricks, but you have to find that binding material for yourself. Obviously it's just adding to the work, trying to uh, work them to death. Well, they complain. They have access to him. Uh, the foremen do. They can apparently appeal to Pharaoh. So verse 15, we see that appeal. The foremen of the sons of Israel came and cried out to Pharaoh, saying, Why do you deal with this way with your servants? There's no straw given to your servants, yet they keep saying to us, Make bricks. And behold, your servants are being beaten. But it's the fault of your own people. They don't say, It's your fault, Pharaoh. This is a dumb idea. They're not that foolish. But they say, you've got government officials that you must not know about that are making dumb choices and asking us to keep doing work without supplying the straw. And then they find out to their horror that their problem is not some government official down the line. It's Pharaoh. He turns obvious with anger and says to them, you are lazy, very lazy. And therefore you say, let us go and sacrifice to the Lord. So go now and work, for you shall be given no straw, yet you must deliver the quota of bricks. And the foremen of the sons of Israel saw that they were in trouble because they were told, you must not reduce your daily amount of bricks. And when they left Pharaoh's presence, they met Moses and Aaron as they were waiting for them. You can imagine how this went. And they said to them, May the Lord look upon you and judge you, for you have made us odious. You made us stink in Pharaoh's sight and in the sight of his servants. And you've put a sword in their hand to kill us. You've given them an excuse to work us to death. And then Moses returned to the Lord and was really very immature. It comforts me to see how immature he was. Hallelujah. Oh, Lord, why have you brought harm to this people? Why did you ever send me? Notice he's whining. How many does that comfort? Yeah. 
whiny prayers. Ever since I came to Pharaoh to speak your name, he has done harm to this people, and you have not delivered your people at all. What did he forget? It's going to take a while. God set it up front. By the way, the Lord answers him and reminds him of that very thing. Chapter 6, verse 1. Now the Lord said to Moses, I told you, dummy, it was going to take time. That's my translation. I'll publish that someday. Now you shall see what I will do to Pharaoh. For under compulsion, I said, he'll let them go. And under compulsion, I said, he'd drive them out of this land. Look at verse 6. Say, therefore, to the sons of Israel, I am the Lord, and I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians, and I will deliver you from their bondage, and I will redeem you with an outstretched arm. That means I'm going to do mighty things and with great judgments. Notice they're all plural. I said I had to do a bunch of stuff to get this to happen, remember? Oh, yeah. Okay. All right, what do we learn? As we go through this chapter, we're going to see five things that are part of the devil's weapons, and they are attacks on our mind. Number one verse two, is in verse 2. But Pharaoh said, Who is the Lord that I should obey his voice to let Israel go? I don't know Yahweh, and besides, I will not let Israel go. The devil comes along and he plants, in, when God speaks something to us and we step out and there is this, this first stepping forward to see somebody set free, something healed, something delivered, something restored. And the enemy comes and he says to you, you fool, who do you think you are? You really think your little God can deliver you after 30 years of addiction? You think you, that your little God can get you free from this? Don't you know that depression's physiological? You're not coming out of that. Not even God can help you. And you know, if the devil doesn't help you, other Christians will. One of the meanest things in the world is what other people in the church often say to you when you're sick or suffering. They're very troubled by your illness and it bothers them and they've got need to make sure that you know this is your fault. Don't they? I'll tell you why they do it. They're frightened. They're frightened that if it isn't your fault, it might happen to them. And so they need to make sure you know that it's, this is your fault. Forgive them, I guess. It's foolish, it's stupid, but it happens all the time. Little well-meaning people. I call them Santa's helpers. Behind their back. <laughs> I, I, I don't call you Santa's helpers. I haven't called anybody that lately. Other churches I did. He wants us to doubt God's power to help us. He wants us to feel like a fool for trusting God. He says, to, the, he says to, to Moses and Aaron, he says, Egypt has a lot of gods. In fact, I've never even heard of Yahweh, which would be true. He says, I've never even heard the name of Yahweh. In fact, I'm a god in their economy. Remember that? You're asking me, the 
incarnation of the sun god Ray to bow to some Yahweh, a little slave god? I don't think so. There's an impudence in the devil. There's a defiance and a pride in the devil. That's how he got where he is. It's still there. And he'll come to your heart and he'll say, your God can't deliver you. You've been addicted too long. People who've been in your condition, your, your, the length of time you've been in it, they don't come out. People that have been depressed for all these years, don't you know it has a physiological root? You're just physically this way. I was set free from depression at 43 years of age. Do you know how long I'd had it? Do you know how many times I'd prayed? Do you know how stupid I felt? And do you know that God delivered me in an instant, but it took decades to bring me to that instant? Did you hear how I said that? He delivered me instantly, but it took me decades to be prepared where I could finally let go or do whatever had to happen. I don't know, but something happened like that, and I've never had it since. I've had the blues. I get grumpy. I don't know if you can get healed of that. Not even God can heal me a grumpy. But depression, I know that stuff. I, I, had, I had it deeply. And then he tell you it's all physiological. I think it does affect your body, no question about it. But I think it's a chicken and the egg. I think it's a soul wound, and I think the body responds. The Lord healed me in a moment. The devil was talking to me all the time. I, I was in a situation in a hospital a while back, and a man's wife was in there, and it appeared to be dying. In fact, the nurse said, uh, don't go home. I don't think you'll have to wait more than a couple of hours, and she'll be gone. Just building their faith. And her husband was standing just believing that God would heal his wife. But he had other family members who were ostensibly Christians. And they took me aside and, and they said, you know, we're kind of worried about so-and-so here. We think he's in denial. Well, I looked at it and I assessed him. You know, denial's a, a fear-driven thing. Denial, there is denial. But I looked at him and I thought, I, I said, I don't think he's in denial. I think what you're looking at is faith. You can always call a person with faith, you can say they're in denial. Well, the bottom line is, was he or wasn't he? God, miraculous. That woman was, I, we went in and prayed over her. You could watch her blood pressure was just absolutely at the collapsing level. And we'd lay hands on her and pray, and that blood pressure would rise, 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 rise. And then we'd, we'd back off and it'd down, 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 down. And we'd pray, 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 pray. And up, 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 up. And we just, just this, this, you could literally see your prayers affected on the, on the, on the scale. As you prayed, up it went. When you stopped, down it went. And we just prayed and prayed for hours. She was in church last night. Now, you tell me, was he in denial? But family, so ostensibly Christians, I never see him in church, but they call themselves Christians. They were, in, they, were, they were telling him, you're in denial. 
the devil doesn't do it, your family will. Bringing doubt. Doubt that your God can do what he's promised. I've sort of had, I've been mean to your family. Apologize for me, would you? I'm just, I'm just, what I'm saying, I've watched this too many years to not know that it's the people around us that often stick us the hardest. They mean well. They're dealing out of their own unbelief, their own ignorance, their own fears. They're not trying to be unkind, but they end up being unkind and not helpful often when we're suffering. Secondly, verse 8, but the quota of bricks which they are making previously you shall impose on them. You are not to reduce any of it because they are lazy. Notice him attack their character. Therefore, they cry out, let us worship. They don't really want to worship. Their motives aren't right. They are simply lazy. You aren't, you aren't really doing this because you heard from God, he's saying. You, you just don't want to work. You want a week off. The devil always comes and brings shame. Basically, he's saying people like you don't deserve to be free or to be blessed. And the fact is, if we examine our hearts, we'll always find some impure motives present. If you look at your heart and say, is my heart right in this? And you look deep enough, you'll always find a mixed verdict. Am I doing this for pure reasons? Of course not. Not this side of the resurrection. Your little heart and mine. The Bible says it's deceitfully wicked and who can know it? I mean, there's, there's always that stuff there. And so if I scrutinize my heart, I can say, well, I have no right to ask this of God. I have no right to believe this can happen for me, not given my history, not given my heart, not given my mess. Who am I to ask this kind of miracle from God? The devil will always come in and just gut us based on our performance. Let me remind you something. God doesn't wait till our hearts are perfect. He delivers us because he loves us. Not because we deserve it. He delivers us because he loves us. He's the one that came along and said, I'm going to do this. He delivers you because he loves you, not because you deserve it. I can think of a man in another church far, far away. By the way, I don't use you in illustration. Sometimes people think I do. And I used somebody's healing last night, so I have, maybe I do. But I don't use you in negative ones. <laughs> but this man was a fine leader, and the men of the church drew to him. I just felt one day, I asked him, I said, would you consider being a, a men's leader, a, a leader of a men's group in our church? And he said, no, pastor, I can't do that. I said, why not? And he says, my heart isn't pure enough. He says, I, I don't love God enough. I don't love my family enough. I, he says, I, think, I, don't, I don't think my motives are pure enough. And I said, to, I, I said to him, I said, if we wait for your motives to be totally pure, the rapture will have occurred. <laughs> and, and I meant it. 
I'm not, I'm not encouraging bad motives. We can do things for bad motives. There's no question about that. But if you're waiting for your little heart to be pristine before you step out and do something, you're going right on to heaven without doing a thing. What you do is you choose to follow the right motives. You choose to follow the Lord. The question is, are you obeying God? And if you're obeying God, then you step out and you do what he's told you to do. Thirdly, verses 9 through 19, I'll just read verse 9. Pharaoh says, in fact, the order goes out that very day. Let the labor be heavier on them. And let the work, let them work at it that they may pay no attention to the lying words. He comes along and he says, look what happens when you trust God. Things just get worse. You see, there's that demonic backlash. You step forward in the Lord, you can anticipate a reaction. But when people don't know it's coming, when they don't understand this principle we're talking about today, they react with shock and they go, whoa, I'm asking God for help and things are getting worse. How many of you have heard people say things like this? Whenever I start to get serious with God, bad things happen. I know people that are afraid to go on with God because every time I do, something bad happens. It's almost a superstition. Or this. When I tried to stop... An incredible craving, a worse one I've ever felt, came over me till I gave in. I don't dare try to get out of this addiction. Or, when we started praying for him, he got worse, not better. How many, you know what that looks like. Or, since I got saved, all hell broke loose. Life was pretty smooth till I got saved. What's the deal here? Well, I'm telling you what the deal is. There is a deal. You say, well, then it's better to not get saved. Oh, I, oh, that's great. Cool idea. Because they'll give you chopped straw while you make bricks. You don't have to search for your own stubble anymore. That's, isn't that great? Would you, they, they could have stayed the rest of their lives in bondage. Did God deliver them? Did he give them a promised land flowing with milk and honey? Did they have to raise one finger or fire a shot to, to how force the Egyptians to do it? Did he keep all of his promises? But they had to learn to do what? Stand firm. Say it with me. Stand firm. That was their battle. That's what they had to do. They had to stand firm while God did his mighty work. Okay, I guess I'll use this a little. No, I won't. All right, this is really a dumb illustration. And I don't even think it's true. But someone told me it is, and I believed them. Have you ever heard of a flea circus? They're, they take little fleas and they train them to do little acrobatic acts and walk on little trapeze and stuff like that. Haven't seen one lately, have you? You have to look at it with a micro, magnifying glass. But there are such things. There's flea circuses. And the, the, the key to having a flea circus is you've got to stop the fleas from hopping. Because fleas, you know, hop. 
They don't, they don't walk, they hop. They spring from place to place, and you've got to break them of that habit uh, if you're going to have a flea circus. You knew that, I, I'm sure. <laughs> well, I was told the way they do this is you put them in a matchbox, and you flick the matchbox, and the flea hops upon instinct and bangs his head, <laughs> or whatever's up there on a flea. And they just keep doing it. They just keep flicking the matchbox. And, they, and the poor little flea keeps bang, 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 bang. And after a while, the fleas go, oh, no, no, no. Not jumping anymore. And they can break the flea, the habit of, of jumping. And then, then you can put it on the little trapeze and make it. <laughs> you see, the key to the deal is... You got to, the devil's trying to shock us into submission. He's trying to break our our habit of being free. He's trying to break us mentally, because once he's broken us mentally, he doesn't have to have a matchbox. All he has to do is train us, and he can put us into submission. He just figures every time you get out there and you start getting uppity, he's going to give you a punch. Just make sure you know. You ask, for, you ask for, for, for deliverance, he's just going to hit you harder. You start praying for somebody, they're going to get worse. He'll just snap the matchbox until you get the picture. He'll put you right back in place, and then he has you as his slave. You aren't going to inherit your promise. You're not going to get blessing, and you're not coming out of the bondage. That's why I say, if you and I are going to come out of bondage and inherit our promises, we must get tough. Real Christians have to be strong. They have to learn to stand firm, stubbornly trusting God, even when there's this kind of backlash and opposition. We hang on to our, our, our mind and we keep trusting the Lord. It makes us look foolish at times. You can ridicule us. You can, you can say we're idiots for it. But there's a toughness in Christians. And you'll watch them. God is always God. When he makes a promise to us, he keeps his promise. And those who stand firm inherit their promises. Fourthly, in verse 20 and 21, when they left Pharaoh's presence, that's after all of these uh, foremen and and, uh, taskmasters came out, uh, the foremen, the Hebrew foremen come out of that meeting and Moses and Aaron are waiting somewhere outside the palace. And they said to them, May the Lord look upon you and judge you for what you have done. Basically, you made us odious, you made us stink in Pharaoh's sight and in the sight of his servants and put a sword in their hand to kill us. The devil wants to drive a wedge between us and those God has sent to help us. He breeds distrust. I said when we began this whole series, God uses people to free people. Remember that? Say it with me. God uses people to free people. He doesn't doesn't just use angels and, and come directly or wave magic wands. He uses people to free people. And in this case, he had sent Moses, and Moses dragged along Aaron. But he sent someone to free the people of Israel. And it's very important to the devil that he separate the hearts of the people from those he sent to help them. Distrust. And so when that backlash comes, 
the, rea- the natural reaction in us is to get angry at those who encourage us to trust God. And it makes us get isolated and sullen. Don't keep telling me to trust God. I trusted God and look what happened. And it separates us. It's a very important part of the process. He wants to drive a wedge between us and those God has sent to help us. Basically, they said to Moses, look at the trouble that listening to you has brought on us. We trusted you and look where it got us. May God, they literally say, may God punish you for misleading us. He wants us to turn away in anger from those who tell us to be patient and trust God. Fifthly, verse 22 and 23. Then Moses returned to the Lord and said, O Lord, why have you brought harm to this people? I beg your pardon. Why did you ever send me? Ever since I came to Pharaoh to speak your name, in in your name, he has done harm to this people, and you have not delivered your people at all. Notice that God is held responsible for what the devil did. A confusion comes in the mind, and we begin to blame God for the demonic response. God, why did you do this? I beg your pardon, why did who do this? God, I prayed. I'm doing this for you. I'm trying to lead these people to the Lord. And look what's happening. I give my life to Christ and look what's come. Why did you do this? Notice the confusion he wants to bring. He wants to set us against the Lord. Set us against each other. As it were, set us against ourselves in shame. But he wants to set us mostly a wedge between us and God. And you'll notice the problem for Moses was that he remembered only the part of what God said about the deliverance and about the land of milk and honey. But he forgot the warning that there would be a battle. When Moses listens to God, he imme- God then immediately says to him, I told you this would take time. And he's telling you and me that if we're going to have the blessings that he has for us, there is a battle on. I don't wish to frighten you, and whenever I bring the subject up, it sort of is frightening for some people. But there is an opponent in this world. There is a devil. And he is against any time the kingdom of God tries to move forward. Any time there's salvation, healing, deliverance, restoration, love, provision, protection, guidance. Any time God's moving into the darkness, into the brokenness, into the loneliness, into the pain of people's lives, any time God's doing to save somebody, there is someone trying to stop it. And if you don't know that, you're going to just get run over. And I guarantee you, you'll get confused, you'll get shamed, you'll have doubt, you'll have oppression. The whole thing, it's in here. The battle's in here. And he'll render you defeated and hopeless, for all practical purposes, back in bondage. That's where he wants to go with us. Now, 
What did Israel have to do? What was their side of the battle? What I want you to notice in this is how simple it is. For us to fight, we do not take on the devil personally. Oh yeah, there's times when we will cast demons out, that kind of thing, or address something. But even then, man, you're, you're hiding in God and <laughs> you're letting the Lord do the work. But here's all you have to do. First of all, pray. We see them praying to the Lord. That's what started the whole thing. Keep the communication open. Let him remind us over and over of what he's promised. We keep forgetting. We need to sit with him and let him remind us of his promises. Secondly, Israel had to repent for their sin. You say, where did you get that? Well, I get it out of verse five, uh, chapter 5, verse 3. Remember when Moses and Aaron, they came to Pharaoh and they said, let the people go. Uh, 60 to 90 miles out into the wilderness that they might sacrifice to the Lord. The reason they needed to go that far is because the Egyptians found sacrifice revolting. These animals they worshipped and here the, Egypt, the Hebrews were slaughtering them. So it, was a, it, it produced a, a violent, angry, emotional reaction from the Egyptians. So if we're going to sacrifice, we have to go out into the wilderness. Well, do you know what sacrifice represented? Absolutely. Forgiveness of sin. You took, the, you took the animal, you confessed your sins, and you slit its throat, and basically you're saying, there but for the grace of God go I. That should be me that's dying right now for my sin. That's what, that's what burnt offering was. It was a confession of sin and a plea for mercy, which of course looks forward to the Lamb of God, the cross. It worked because they were expressing faith in the one who would come and die for them. You and I today express faith that one has come and died for us. We look backward, they look forward, but it all went to the cross. Do you see that? And so they're saying, God has appeared and we're feeling really worried. Why would they really be worried? Well, do you suppose they were worshiping Egyptian gods? Remember what happened when they were out there at Mount Sinai? They built a golden calf. You bet they were worshiping Egyptian gods. You suppose they picked up any of the Egyptian morals? Oh, I think maybe a few of them. And then to hear that Yahweh, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the one that, didn't he just fricassee Sodom and Gomorrah for the same stuff we're doing? Hmm. And so they said, we've got to have a worship service quick. Really quick. We got to do some repenting. We got to get our hearts right before God. That's what that was all about. That was no lie. That wasn't a bluff. You know, you might think, well, they just wanted to sneak out of town. My foot. You are not going to sneak out of Egypt with the Egyptian army. They'll come out and just clean you out in a second. You're not going to sneak out of Egypt. It's going to take the Red Sea to do it. So they had to pray, they had to repent for their sins, confess them, and, and ask for God's mercy. They had to cooperate with those that the Lord sent to help them, Aaron and Moses in this case. And then lastly, and we'll turn to our final verse, that's in Ephesians chapter 6. Paul describes this same thing and says it so beautifully. The last thing they had to do was what? Let's try that again. Once more. 
Yeah, they had to stand firm. Now listen to, listen to, to Paul. Chapter 6, verse 10. You all know where Ephesians is now that the children told you. <laughs> Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Whose might? The Lord's might. Notice God's going to do this fighting for us. Put on the full armor of God so that you'll be able to stand firm. Say it. Stand firm against the schemes of the devil. And you know now five of them. You know five of the things, and you know what they are. The schemes of the devil come after your mind, gutting you, draining you of, of confidence in God. For our struggle is not against people, but against spiritual forces, the rulers, the powers, the world forces of this darkness, against spiritual forces of wickedness in heavenly places. The devil and his demonic host. We're dealing with a spiritual opposition, not people. Therefore, take up the full armor of God, God's defense, so that you'll be able to resist in the evil day and having done everything to stand firm. See that? Say it. Stand firm. Stand firm, therefore, having girded your loins. And then he describes truth, righteousness, peace, faith. And then he says we have to have salvation and the sword of the word, which is our, our way of defending or being aggressive is the promises of God. He says, clothe yourself with God's, God's protection and stand firm against this demonic assault. That's exactly what we've just seen in chapter 5. That very principle illustrated with Pharaoh and the, and the people of Israel. Would you bow your heads with me? Somebody today, I'll bet, needs to make a fresh pledge to stand firm. You have indeed experienced this battle. You have tried to step out in the Lord. You've tried to move forward from a, a deliverance or bringing someone to Christ. Or you've just given your life to Christ. And as you've done, done it, all hell broke loose. And it confused you. And it shamed you. And it, you, you, just, you thought, what in the world? And, and you've, it's, it's caused you to, to drive back and doubt God and doubt yourself. And be angry at those who tell you to... Trust God. The mental battle's been on full swing. And, and when you see it done there with Pharaoh, it's so clear. But right now, you know that you need to make a fresh pledge. And say, Lord, I will stand firm. I understand there's a backlash that comes. But I also know what you promised me. And I know you're a powerful God. You far outweigh anything the devil can ever do. Doesn't matter how many years I've had this thing. You're a God who can deliver me. And you will do all you've promised. You will, I don't care how long that person has refused to receive Christ. You're a God that can break through every defense. I'm trusting you. I'm going to stand firm believing you will do all that you've promised to do. Now, if that's you today, 
And rather than just raise your hand, I'd like you to stand. I think we need to stand, actually, and illustrate that standing firm. Who needs to stand and say, I'm going to stand firm. I'm pledging to the Lord today. In the face of this, I will stand firm. I reject doubt. I reject shame. I understand this oppression. I know where it's coming from. I refuse to distrust those who love me and pray for me and encourage me. And I will not blame God for what the devil's doing. I choose today to stand firm. Hallelujah. For my God is great. My God is strong. There is none like him in all the universe. Maker of heaven and earth. He's the Lord of lords and the King of kings. Though the devil is a shrewd and a a vicious opponent, my God will destroy him with the strength of his arm. My God will do miracles and force him to release me or my loved one. Hallelujah, hallelujah. Heavenly Father, we come right now. And we start out by repenting in any way that we've allowed distrust to come in. In any way that we've grown confused and accused you, in any way we've grown hostile toward other believers who've encouraged us, forgive us. Forgive us for doubting your power. We forgot, Lord, that you said it would, it was a process, that it would take time. We forgot just what Israel forgot. But we, you did deliver Israel because of your love for them. And you will do the same for us. Today we stand firm, we trust, we declare in the name of Jesus Christ, you will save, you will deliver, you will heal, you will provide, you will guide, you will restore, you will bring love and melt that heart. You will do it for you are Yahweh. I am that I am, the ever-present Lord, the same yesterday, today, and forever. We bless you and we praise you, O God. We stand firm now. Would you just, between you and the Lord, tell him right now why you're standing firm. Just have a little conversation for a minute. So this is a personal thing. Apply it just under your breath. Just say, Lord, I am standing firm on your promise that. I'm standing firm on your promise, Lord God. I'm standing firm. Praise you, Jesus. Hallelujah. Oh, Lord God, we bless you. We put on the heavenly armor. We stand clothed, Lord, with peace and faith, with righteousness, defended from, by your strength. And trust you now, Lord. Stand in the power of God to see you deal with the devil. Thank you for breaking his, his plans. Thank you for forcing him to release and to, and to let go. Thank you, Lord, that you have bought us with a price. We are yours. And no power of hell can hold us. We praise you, Lord. Just strengthen us and refresh us in our faith and confidence. Grace our heart to stand firm, believing you to do all that you have promised, above and beyond what we could ask or think. You are a great and mighty God. You never lose. And we praise you for that. In Jesus' mighty name, we confess it. If you're confessing that, would you say amen? Amen. Thanks for listening. 
If you like this podcast, please click the like button, subscribe, and share it with a friend. For more information, just head to our website, lifelessonspublishing.com. That's lifelessonspublishing.com. There you'll be able to order many of the books Pastor Steve has written.